You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to First Tech's latest news podcast for August, where we cover off on all the relevant news impacting financial advisors and their clients. So this month, we've got a few things we want to talk about. We've got some uh, generous fringe benefits tax proposals uh, to encourage the take up of uh, low emissions vehicles. So electric cars, things like Teslas. Um, We've got some transfer balance cap reporting developments. We've got some um, new uh, legislation in relation to deeming rates and Commonwealth Seniors Health Cards, as well as downsizer changes. So we're going to go through all of those. Um, So I've got with me here Linda Bruce, Richard Chan and Tim Sanderson. So, Linda, let's start off with you. Yeah. How are you this afternoon? Fantastic. That's great. Not super? Do you want me to say no, it? No, no, that's all good. So, um, okay, now, we've recently seen the new Labor government introduce a lot of climate change legislation, yep. right? So rather getting into, you know, carbon tax credits changing and all that sort of stuff, one of the things that actually has flown under the radar a little bit, mm. because I was surprised when I saw this, mm. is some changes to the fringe benefits tax rule. So do you want to just quickly summarise what's happening here? Yeah, sure. Uh, we're pretty behind of international peers. So to encourage take up the low emissions cars and to reduce some of the transport emissions, our government has introduced something really generous that has surprised a lot of people. They introduced a bill in late July and it hasn't been legislated, but mm-hmm. if legislated, that will apply to a French benefit tax exemption to to certain electric cars. Right. Okay. So if we're talking FPT exemptions, I assume we're talking about, you know, clients entering into salary mm. sacrifice packages and packaging up a car as mm. part of a novated lease. Is, is that what we're talking about? Yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. Do you want me to elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, if you yeah. can. Okay, cool. So with a novated lease, uh, the... What is involved is a go check with the payroll. They can do it. That's first step. Uh, and then the employee would generally agree on some terms with the provider. So over the selective terms could be three years, four years, five years, you name it. Mm-hmm. So the employee and would agree on those terms. How much, what's the finance cost? Usually that's the interest charged on the cost of the car and the cost of the car and some running costs. This can all be packaged um, into uh, the agreement. And rather than employee paying it after uh, with their after-tax salary, the employer will take over the lease and pay those costs on behalf of the employee. And they take the cost out of the employee's pre-tax salary. Effectively, those costs were covered by pre-tax money, meaning the uh, income, the salary subject to income tax from the employee's perspective would be reduced. It can be very tax effective. Right. So we've got a reduced level of income. So mm. therefore, we've got a tax savings. So mm. 
that What's sounds a like cat? A, yeah, it sounds like a bit of a magic pudding. So yeah. this is obviously where fringe benefits tax kicks exactly. in. Exactly, yeah? exactly. Yeah, that's where the fringe benefit tax kick in. Uh, it's weird though uh, with. Other fringe benefit tax, you look at the actual fringe benefits provided by the employer. But when the car is involved, you don't look at what the actual amount got taken um, as a pre-salary uh, amount. Uh, the, you, it's actually based on the cost of the car. The mm-hmm. higher amount of the car costs more, the fringe benefit tax would be higher. The car costs less, the fringe benefit tax would be a little bit smaller. So without going into the nitty-gritty details, uh, Craig, otherwise we'll be sitting here for days, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so literally a high level, you look at 20% of the retail price of the car uh, and that's the amount for uh, the employer to work out the fringe benefit tax payable uh, so long the um, the finance terms or the select terms uh, last. Uh, and um, where are they going to take the uh, tax uh, out? The tax, fringe benefit tax is payable by the employer, but employees are not going to bear the cost. No. They are going to take it from the employee's salary. Right. So if we're now talking about a fringe benefits tax exemption, mm. so we get all the benefit of packaging those things up and then the employer paying for those things out of my pre-tax salary, mm. but then I normally get uh, a kick in the guts with an FPT slug. Yeah. Mm. So now you're saying that there's not going to be an FPT slug. That's right. So that obviously sounds potentially very generous. Yep. Um, can, I think the government's given us, you know, put out a press release where they gave us some example of the potential tax savings. They, Do you they, want to just go through those? They did. Um, it can be a puzzle if we don't know how it works. All they said was uh, if someone buys a $50,000 car, retail price $50,000, and all they said is the tax saving could be $4,700 a year. And we got questions. How does it work? So on a high level, uh, a, um, a fringe benefit tax payable on a car that costs around $50,000 is around $9,000. So you just have to take my word for mm-hmm. it for these purposes, yeah. right? And if the employer doesn't have to pay this $9,000 going forward, if eligible, then that means the employee will get additional $9,000 salary. Mm-hmm. But... They have to pay tax, yeah, right? Yeah. So the example appears to be based on a scenario where the employee is on top marginal tax rate, so 47%. Mm-hmm. Then the tax on that additional $9,000 based on the 47% tax would be around $4,200. So that's how the government worked out. Rather than pay $9,000 fringe benefit tax, you pay $4,200 income tax. So the saving is somewhere around the $4,700 or $4,800. Mm-hmm. That's where they get it from. Yep. So in other words, the employee in that scenario will take additional $4,700 back home that they can perhaps cope with the uh, inflation problem. Yeah, right. Spike further inflation. Fantastic. <laughs> um, now, that obviously sounds fantastic. That sounds um, fantastic, but, but yeah, what's a catch, hey? Well, there's always a rule or a qualification, <laughs> yeah. yeah? So what yeah. are they? So not all cars uh, are eligible. We're talking about a car uh, who are eligible for it. It must be a zero or low emission uh, vehicle. We're talking about battery electric cars, hydrogen fuel cell electric cars, and a plug-in hybrid electric cars. 
Oh, that was a very mouthful. Yeah. But anyway, I said it. <laughs> Second, um, it's subject uh, the the retail cost and the associated cost cannot cause the luxury car tax to apply. Uh, in other words, the retail sale price that's the GST inclusive. You have to take GST in, uh, into account. Uh, it must be under the luxury car tax threshold for fuel efficiency vehicles. So that amount for the current financial year is $84,916. In mm -hmm. other words, you can select the car um, up to, up to that. that value. Yeah. 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 And the last one, um, the car must be first held and used on or after 1st July 2022. Right. So all those early adopters, they miss no, out. No, they miss out. Yeah. Unless they trade up to a new. Absolutely. Even yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing there to note is mm. in my reading of this, mm. um, battery electric vehicles. So that's a full EV, right? And then yeah. hydrogen fuel cell, that's not so much these days, but might come down, down the track hybrid hybrid plug-in hybrid electric cars so that is where the car itself you can plug it in they've mm. got a very large battery pack yep. your standard hybrid that self-charges when you go and fill it up with petrol and the petrol engine charges the battery pack that's not included right? i have absolutely no idea what you yeah, just yeah. said no, no, but I, went, anyway. <laughs> I went looked at all of this because i thought oh that sounds very generous um, but no, it's not your standard, you know, bog standard Toyota Prius that no. that uh, is a normal hybrid. It is those plug-in hybrids. So it's got a very large battery pack that is, gets um, charged up from the, the network. Um, is there anything else I need to be aware of here? Yeah, so I was very curious when I heard about it because there's one thing when fringe benefit attacks come into play, that is... Um, those amount the fringe benefits or the salary package the amount got taken from your pre-tax salary, it doesn't just uh, disappear, right? There's something called a reportable fringe benefits. Mm -hmm. You don't pay tax on reportable fringe benefits, um, but it still show up on your group certificate, your income statement. You still needed to put that amount in your tax return. And that it will have uh, impact on the various tax and super measures. I thought... So this exemption maybe means this amount is not reportable. How wrong could I be? Mm. So you look at the bill introduced, the reportable fringe benefits will, uh, will stay. So the employer, although they exempt from paying fringe benefit tax, they still have to gross up the amount and report the fringe benefits um, on the income statement or a group summary, whatever you want to call it. That means... Potentially, it could have an impact or included when calculating uh, your Division 293 tax, government co-contributions, spouse contribution tax offset, or some social security measures such as family tax benefit, A and B, okay. you know, right. etc. So, you got so we, get, yeah. we get the gist there. Yeah. So just because we're not paying fringe benefits tax on yeah. this amount doesn't disappear and can be taken into account for, for other things. That's so right. to, yeah. but just reiterating here, this isn't law yet, is it? It's not. It's okay. still with House of Reps. Okay. Uh, maybe I think the Parliament will reset uh, next month in September. Right. So hopefully, and we we'll, and we have a Parliament these days that seems to be fairly partial to uh, you know it's changed its tune yep. around um, climate change initiatives. So. Yep. Fingers crossed that might come through. So uh, hopefully we see an increased take-up of people uh, entering into electric vehicles um, via salary sacrifice arrangements. Thanks, Linda. That was awesome. Thanks, Craig. All right, Tim.
Tim, we've got some transfer balance cap stuff going on. So from a reporting perspective, advisors with clients who have rolled over a tap since 1 July 2017 when those rules first came in, there's potentially going to be some reporting or re-reporting of debits going on, which may impact a client's transfer balance account. So can you just summarise what's actually going on here? Yeah, sure, Craig. Um, So this relates mainly to situations where a client has rolled from a tap to another to a new tap on or after 1 July 2017. And at a high level, the debit on that rollover, the transfer balance account debit, changed in 2020 retrospectively to correct an error in the original debit calculation, which would technically have resulted in a nil debit for the commutation and as a result would have led to double counting for transfer balance purposes. Okay, so if these new rules came out about this new calculation for debits in 2020, why are funds only just getting around to re-reporting these amounts now? Surely that should have happened a couple of years ago. (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, So while the new debit formula did come out in 2020 and was legislated then retrospectively, the government did acknowledge that this change could result in some people exceeding their transfer balance cap because the debit under the new formula, in many cases, was going to be less than the amount calculated under the original, what people would have thought was the calculation, resulting mm-hmm. in a higher transfer balance account value. Um, so given that, the government acknowledged really the need to change the TAP rules to allow impacted people to commute those otherwise non-commutable pensions to resolve that excess. Um, and further to that, the ATO asked funds to hold off re-reporting until those commutation rules had passed so that members could take that action to resolve any excess caused by that new debit formula. And that finally happened in April 2022. So that really explains why those funds are really just starting that reporting or re-reporting now. Okay, so in that case, I assume funds are now writing to impacted clients and their advisors to let them know that they will be re-reporting? Yeah, that's correct. So, look, advisors could be getting correspondence from clients' funds as well as questions from their clients in relation to this reporting and re-reporting. Okay. So, obviously, if we've got a client coming to us and waving a letter around saying, what on earth is all this about? We don't really have time to go into all the gory detail here on how these rules work and where uh, advisors, you know, help explain it to them so they can help their clients. But um, have we got any more information that we can offer up here? Yeah, we do have an article on our website called Transfer Balance Debits Restructure of Certain Complying Income Streams. So advisors could certainly have a look at that article, um, which we've got available. But also um, feel free to give us a call at First Tech if you do have any questions regarding this issue. So what was the name of the article again? Um, transfer balance debits, restructure of certain complying income streams. Bit of a Mine. bit of a complicated one. Doesn't that sound sexy? Oh yeah. <laughs> now, anyway, let's move on. So, freezing of deeming rates is the next thing we want to talk about. So, the government recently committed to freeze the rates that apply to deeming for social security purposes, right? And this came out. I think, during the election. Um, so what's happened here? What developments have happened during August? Sure. So um, it was originally an election announcement, but then on it was actually on the 1st of July, the Minister for Social Services confirmed 
that the government will freeze those deeming rates at current levels. So 0.25% for the lower rate and point uh, and 2.25% for the higher rate um, through to 30 June 2024. So really for two financial years, two extra financial years. Um, interestingly, yep. there's no legislation or regulations needed to keep these deeming rates frozen. It, it's it's more just a government commitment to not make any changes to them, at least until that time. Uh, right. And importantly, we're talking about rates being frozen here. Those deeming thresholds that apply are different depending on a client's situation. Um, they are not frozen and they'll continue to index each July as per normal rules. Okay, so the freezing of deeming rates will mean relatively less deemed income in this financial year and next financial year for clients compared to what would happen if they're actually increased. So who are some of the clients that are going to benefit from this? Yeah, so there's at least a bit of certainty that deemed income on a certain amount of assets won't increase this financial year or next financial year. And look, it may even slightly decrease due to the indexed deeming thresholds. So in terms of who we could expect to benefit, um, obviously means-tested pensioners who have their payment determined under the income test rather than the assets test. Commonwealth Seniors Health Card recipients, um, as that's income tested only, um, it also means that where a client's only income is from, let's say, deemed account-based pensions, then their balances can be higher than if deeming rates had increased. And then finally, low-income health card recipients um, whose income test includes deemed income from financial investments, including all account-based pensions. All right. Thanks, Tim. That was fantastic. Now, let's move on to looking at another Centrelink-related news item. And let's start talking to Richard. G'day, Richard. Hello, Craig. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Okay, so I understand a bill has been introduced into the uh, into the Parliament to you know lock in these income thresholds for Commonwealth. Well, not lock them in, increase them. I think they said um, for the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. So, do you want to run through what's happening here? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so, the increase in the Commonwealth Senior Health Card income test thresholds. Uh, was originally a pre-election policy announced by the coalition government. And at the time, the Labor Party said they would also support the measure um, should they be um, should they win the election. Um, the government then introduced a bill late mm-hmm. in July this year. If the bill become legislated, uh, the new thresholds will be effective from 20 September 2022. So, okay, so this... It was funny during the election campaign, wasn't it? it was every time the, the then government came out and said something... <laughs> the opposition at that time came out and said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that too, yeah. no worries. Um, and so, you know, what Tim was talking about and now in relation to Commonwealth Seniors Health Card, um, all of this legislation is now coming through and they're affecting these changes. So, okay, if the bill does end up being legislated and we probably think it will, um, what are these new income thresholds? Yeah, so the thresholds for single is proposed to increase from 57,761 so around 90,000. Wow. Yeah. So this is a big jump. Yeah, and for couples, uh, the threshold is proposed to increase from 92,416 to 144,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, like, in terms of number of people eligible? Yeah, so the government estimates an extra 50,000 older Australians uh, would p- potentially have access to the Commonwealth Senior Health Card because of the change. Right. The final change I want to talk about uh, is downsize of contributions. Now, obviously, 
we saw downsizer age, eligibility age, decrease from 65 to 60. And that was already in place before. You know, that was uh, an initiative put in place by the previous government and actually became effective. It was legislated well before the, 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 um, the election, um, but took effect on the 1st of July this year. But we've seen further announcements. And I think this was also another, you know, we're going to drop it to 55 and anything you can do, we can do too, was yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Right. Okay. So so what's happened here? I think we've got a new bill, don't we? Yeah. So this was um, this was another pre-election policy originally introduced by a coalition in May this year, mm-hmm. which, like you said, the government, the Labor government said that they would support. Um, the bill was introduced earlier this month and is set to commence from the start of the following quarter after receiving Royal Assent. So this means at the earliest, it could start from 1 October this year. Okay. So just think about what this actually means. So for people that, if it gets in, people um, that are over 55 can potentially combine a downsizer contribution with a non-concessional contribution to get in up to $1.26 million for a couple in one year. Now, you can potentially play with some of these rules and get more over two years, but if you just looked at it in one year, $1.26 million. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But there are actually a number of things advisors should consider. Um, firstly, it would depend on how much they have, how much cash they have available to, to contribute to super as to whether making doubts as a contribution is actually a, a viable strategy. For many people, uh, utilising the bring forward and contributing up to 330000 each may be sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and this allows clients to save their oneself ability to make the downsides of contribution for the future as there is no upper age limit for this. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if a couple has a lot of cash available, it may be advantageous to make a downsides of contribution in addition to their non-concessional contribution. And this can be particularly tax effective for individuals who are still working and on a high marginal tax rate. Um, this is mainly because putting money into super allows any growth and investment return to be taxed at the superannuation tax rate at 15% uh, instead of their marginal tax rate. Um, however, the consideration here would be preservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will not have access to the funds until after they satisfy a condition of release, mm-hmm. such as retirement, um, which may not be until age 65, um, they would need to be very careful um, when considering whether or not uh, they may need access to the funds because they may not be able to for up to a period of 10 years. Yeah, and I suppose when you think about this $1.26 million figure, I mean, really, if you're someone in a capital city selling up, I mean, where does this, you're going to have to go and buy back into the same market unless you're doing something like a sea change, although... God, with all people moving to regional towns, seaside towns these days with, you know, the working from home revolution, sometimes that's not actually saving you any money, right? So you might be doing a tree change, maybe moving to, you know, somewhere like Wagga or Orange or Orange. Who'd move to Orange Um, uh, these days? And that might free up a lot of capital, right? But if you go and throw that into superannuation as a downsizer contribution, then two or three years later you go, I don't really like reliving in regional New South Wales. I want to move back to the city. Well, all of that money is now locked up until potentially retirement, which might still be five, ten years away. So, um, so yeah, a lot of considerations there. I think the preservation, everyone's really, you know, sounding positive about this reduction in age. But 
it really does depend on, and our preservation will be a really important consideration going forward about what people intend to do in the future. Anyway, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Um, thanks, guys, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.